It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, in our language, as it is, I think, perhaps in any language, oftentimes there are misunderstandings. We'll sometimes say, well, it comes down to a matter of semantics. Words over time change. Their uses change. Their meanings change. The shift in our lexicon over time certainly can be significant. Sometimes, though, the use of words incorrectly can be as a result of error, and that error can have an impact that goes on for decades, centuries, if not millennia. And as a lead into our topic today, that certainly is the case. When the latest book written by John MacArthur, host of Grace to You, came across my desk, I thought, isn't it interesting that John would be dealing with this topic here in the 21st century? Well, of course, as always, once you start turning the pages of any MacArthur book, you discover that John has managed to extract some nuggets from Scripture and sort of pull back the curtains of time, so to speak, to give us a deeper glimpse into not just the Father's heart and his intention, but ultimately what he has in store for us. John, of course, has been the host on Grace to You for many, many years, heard weekday mornings at 10.30 a.m. here on KFAX. And John, as always, a delight and privilege to have you on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Craig, and thank you. Thank you for the partnership we enjoy uh, there with you guys in San Francisco. Now, John, you and I have known each other for many years. You've been a guest on this show a lot of times, and, and I certainly know you never to be a man to, to shy away from controversy, <laughs> of no doubt. I looked at the title of the new book, and I thought, this is interesting. And then as I dove into your new book, Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, I thought, you know, this is going to be a difficult message to communicate with a lot of people in the politically correct environment we have in America today. And yet, the more I read of your book, I came to the conclusion that as politically incorrect as it may appear to be on the surface, there is perhaps no greater message for this time for believers than the one you share inside this new book. Wow, thank you so much, Craig. You know, I don't pursue controversy. I pursue truth and controversy results. I'm always looking for the truth, and I was flying to England a few years ago, and I was studying the word doulos in the New Testament, which is the word for slave. It always means slave in Greek, Uh, always. It doesn't mean servant. A servant is someone who does a job. A slave is someone who is owned, and there's a specific Greek word for slave, and it's doulos. Well, it's used 130 times in the New Testament, but every time it's used to refer to a believer, the translators have substituted some form of the word servant. So I thought, well, why did they do this? Why, what are they trying to hide? So I went all the way back to the Geneva Bible in 1560, where, you know, the, the Reformers were putting the Bible together in English under John Knox, and I discovered from some historical studies that they felt that the concept of slavery just had too much negative baggage And so they opted for the word servant. Well, unfortunately, that's not the word that our Lord intended when he revealed the Scripture. But if you take every English translation since then up until the modern time, with only one recent exception, they all follow that and continue to use the word servant or bondservant rather than slave because of the stigma. So I began to kind of unpack that and realized that there was something hidden from all of us 
that is profoundly important about our identity as slaves of Christ. And of course, as you suggest, that sort of stigma attached to the word is not a, a modern day 20th or 21st century uh, a challenge that we deal with. It looks like that sense of trying to be politically correct goes back over a couple of millennia here, or at least a, a millennia and a half. That said, it, it opens up some very interesting thoughts with regard to what are not, I would consider to be, John, subtle differences, but very significant differences between the application of these two words. No, there's no question about it. And, and think about it. People say, well, boy, that's offensive. That's offensive. Even the publisher said, oh, we can't. First of all, they said, we can't use that word in the title. It's too offensive. Well, I said, look, we don't have any slaves that I know of in America here. So what, what is all the problem about that word? And they said, well, people remember, you know, 200 years ago when there were slaves. So I said, just put yourself in Paul's position. Paul lives in the Roman world. There are between uh, th- uh, 12 and 15 million slaves. One out of five people is a slave. They all understood what slavery was. And yet everywhere he went and everywhere the apostles went, they were telling people they needed to become the slaves of a crucified Jew rejected by his own nation and killed by the Romans because he was God incarnate and the only Savior. Now, that's a hard sell in a world of slavery. And yet that was the message. Uh, the abuses of slavery, the Bible doesn't tolerate. But the concept of being bought and owned is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And, of course, if you add the component that today the way the gospel is twisted, Jesus becomes the slave of a person. Whatever you want, you want happiness, you want fulfillment, you want prosperity, you want healing, you want success. You know, Jesus just wants to roll out and give you what you want. That, that kind of twist reverses the roles and makes the sinner sovereign and Jesus the slave. So for for a lot of reasons, we need to get this right. You know, and I think it's critically important here, because clearly, as you point out, John, the writers of the New Testament, uh, they didn't choose that word by accident. They used doulos because they knew that that word was weighty, that it had significance, it had social significance uh, during the first century. And as such, I think, as you're suggesting inside the pages of your new book, Slave, the writers were, were looking to convey a very specific message in relationship to the relationship that believers have with our Savior. Absolutely right. And, and the part of it was the sole role that the Lord played. Jesus said you cannot be a slave to two masters. You can only be owned by one. In Jude, it says that the, uh, Jesus is our only master and Lord. And with the rich young ruler, Jesus said, you know, you either worship me or you worship your money. And the guy turned and walked away because his God was money. And he had a different Lord than the Lord that he, uh, he had approached and asked about eternal life. So the singular identity of Jesus as Lord means that you submit wholly, solely, and only to him. That's why... He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you have to start by denying yourself. Repentance and self-denial, affirming uh, Christ as Lord, that's what it means to 
be a true Christian. And it's interesting because if we compare the two words here, I mean, take, for example, there are those in the audience that maybe have servants. Maybe they are wealthy. They have individuals who are butlers and maids. They take care of household chores and things of this sort. They are compensated for their services. They might be under contract, but that contract could be severed at any time. And at the point at which the person who is paying them for the services no longer pays them or they wish to disengage from those services, that relationship is severed. Where if we look at the comparison of the word servant to the word slave, we know immediately one significant difference here, John, is, and this this struck me immediately inside of the first couple of pages in the book, is, well, of course this makes sense, because for the Christian, just like the slave, first and foremost, we have to understand we were bought with a price. That is the heart of it. It's a footnote, but you, but people need to consider that there are six words in Greek used in the New Testament that mean servant. All six of them describe a function. Doulos doesn't describe a function. It describes a relationship. And that's exactly right. The way you put it is, is exactly right. I could serve a lot of people. Somebody working for you could work for somebody else. It could work for 15 people. But when you say he is Lord and Master, my only Lord and Master, then you have total submission to the one who is your Lord. If you've just joined the conversation, we're visiting today with Dr. John MacArthur, host of Grace to You, heard weekday mornings at 10.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. John's new book is called Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, newly published by Thomas Nelson. More information available on the web at gracetoyou.org or simply gty.org. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. John MacArthur as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Once again, Craig Roberts with our very special guest today. You know him as the voice of grace to you. Heard weekday mornings at 1030 a.m. Monday through Friday here on KFAX. He's Dr. John MacArthur. John's latest book is entitled Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. John, in your research on this topic, talk to me and our listeners about the perspective here, because a lot of times it comes down to a matter of perspective as to not how we might define our relationship with Christ, but more importantly, how Christ would define it. In other words, being Christian as Jesus would define it, do we see consistency with the application of this word slave? Well, absolutely, because it was our Lord who said that you identify yourself as belonging to me by your obedience. Obedience is the operative word. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commandments. The defining nature of a believer is very clearly built around this concept of loving obedience. You know, there's this notion today that Jesus just comes along like the genie that fixes your life, or that Jesus comes along to be your buddy, or that Jesus rescues you from, from hell and it's little more than that. That that couldn't be further from the truth. You're talking about total self-denial, a willingness to even die, taking up your cross, and then following him, counting the cost, whatever the cost is, hating yourself, hating your own life, turning away from anything and everything to do specifically and solely what the Lord Jesus asks you to do. That's essentially it. So we're that's why when we talk about what Paul and the early apostles were doing, 
it was clear to everybody they were saying you need to be the slave of Jesus Christ everybody knew exactly what that meant he'll provide for you protection provision everything you need he'll pay the price as you put it he'll purchase you the price of his own blood of course in the case of our Lord Jesus you become his possession he will discipline and reward you they all understood exactly what that meant but as you put it the heart and soul of this is you can't really understand the whole idea of redemption being bought out of the slave market of sin by the price of the blood of Jesus Christ unless you understand it in the context of being purchased to belong to him as his own slave. And it's interesting because you and I have discussed this another topic that that is that resonates close to this very closely um, and that is the whole issue of lordship and the idea that there are a lot of believers that sort of want a lordship in, in, in relationship to what God can do for me. You know, God is kind of the cosmic bellhop. Uh, you know, I need more money in my bank account, things of this sort, God go and do. And so we want a, a negotiated lordship here. We want it on our terms. And yet it's interesting, if you look at the, the core definition of a slave, we come down to the fact that um, you can't pick and choose. You are owned by your master, and this is non-negotiable. You have to follow and obey what your master says with the sum of your entire existence. In fact, your entire existence is to simply do your master's bidding. So this really takes on a whole different tenure, doesn't it, too, when we even look at this contextualized under the lordship relationship. Absolutely. And, and you know, Jesus is such a model of that in Philippians 2. Unfortunately, it's not translated correctly, but where it says that he took upon himself the form of a, Philippians 2, it's actually slave. He became slave to the Father. And in the garden he says, not my will, but yours be done. There's a brand of Christianity that you're referring to floating out around there that assumes that we have a right to demand the power without the submission. We, you know, we have a right to call on the power and to tap the power and, and, and uh, speak sort of the power into existence, and Jesus is obligated to give us the power. Uh, but but that's, a, that's without any consideration of submission and obedience to his will completely. And that, that's true Christianity, where you confess Jesus as Lord, deny yourself, hate yourself, reject the person that you are, and totally submit to his will as what is right, and best. And adding to the richness of this, however, the, the, the picture of the New Testament is we are slaves who then become friends. I call you not merely slaves, but friends, John 15. We are then adopted as sons, which is something that a slave would consider the greatest thing possible. We're not only sons, we are then made citizens. No slave could be a citizen. We then become joint heirs of all that the Father possesses, and one day in glory we reign with him. So this is a new kind of marvelous slavery to the most benevolent, gracious, protective, lavish, providing Lord that anyone could ever have who has all the resources and wants only our very best. I'm glad you went down this road, John, because I want you to expand upon this idea for a moment. We often think of slavery, and, and certainly in a 
a modern-day connotation. We think of the slavery that's going on in Sudan. We think of the slavery that happened in the history of America. And we remember all that was negative about it. But in the context of slavery and the social structure that would have existed during the first century when, when the writers of the New Testament were, 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 were dialoguing for us, Give us some more insight on that. It, it occurs to me that, number one, the relationship between the slave and master would be one where the slave, in many levels, wanted for naught. They were clothed, they were fed, they were housed. All of their basic needs were met by the master. Yeah, they were not the poor, necessarily. It was the free men that would likely generally be the poor. They were the ones trying to eke out an existence on their own. Uh, it, slavery could be very benevolent, depending on the nature of the master. I point out in the book in great detail that there were benevolent uh, uh, slave masters. There were benevolent lords who cared well for their slaves. Uh, there were abuses. Of course there were abuses. But there were many slaves who became friends. There were many slaves who were adopted as sons and therefore were made citizens. There were slaves who were given freedom. So the Lord never... And he knew everything about slavery, but the Lord never attempted to abolish slavery. The apostles never attempted to abolish slavery, but our Lord and the apostles spoke directly against the abuse of slavery, de- de- defining how masters should treat their slaves and how slaves should obey their masters appropriately, particularly in the case of Philemon. You remember that little story? But it is a social relationship that, if handled well, could be the best. It could be the most benevolent to have a home, to have a family, to have all your provisions met, to be protected, to be cared for, uh, to be provided uh, opportunity to serve and expand your abilities and your gifts. Look, in the the Roman Empire, there could be a medical doctor, uh, there could be a lawyer, uh, there could be a craftsman of any kind that was a slave. The the thing that people did didn't necessarily define whether they were slaves or free, because slaves and free men could do the same things. And in many cases, slaves were far better off. Certainly, when we look at it from the kingdom viewpoint, how wonderful that my Lord will provide all my needs. How wonderful that the one who is my master will never condemn me. No one will ever take me out of his hand. How wonderful that he will give me lavishly out of the riches of his grace so that every need is met, that he will take me into his own home, make me a member of his family, elevate me to eternal glory. Luke 12 even has a picture of Jesus when we get to heaven rising up and serving his slaves. Uh, Just a completely different picture. And unfortunately, because the translators uh, toyed with that word, We've lost the richness and the significance of this identity. If you've just joined the conversation, we're visiting today with Dr. John MacArthur, host of Grace to You, heard weekday mornings at 10.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. John's new book is called Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, newly published by Thomas Nelson. More information available on the web at gracetoyou.org or simply gty.org. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. John MacArthur as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Once again, Craig Roberts with our very special guest today. You know him as the voice of Grace to You. Heard weekday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Monday through Friday here on KFAX. He's Dr. John MacArthur. John's latest book is entitled Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. 
It seems, John, as if the big issue here that is at play quietly in the background, as it typically is at so many levels of our Christian walk, and that is the flesh is at play. I, I think of this idea that we we buck against the idea of submission to the Lord. We almost, as we kind of you know related to a moment ago, uh, we want this optional. <laughs> we want to kind of pick and choose where and to what degree we submit to the Lord. Because I think we our flesh fights against the idea of, as a slave would have, the sole concern was to carry out the interests of the order. And that certainly is what God asks of us, that our sole concern ought to be to carry out the interests of our Lord. That is absolutely right and well said. Uh, the other, the other ad, thing to add to that is, who knows best what is for you the best? Who knows? And the Lord does. Do, do I want to say, look, Lord, you can be my Savior, but I'm going to keep control of my life? How foolish is that? I can't see past my nose. I don't know what's coming in the next moment. My Lord is sovereign. All I ever want to say in my life is, Lord, your will be done. Uh, th- that's, the, that's the healthiest, that's the wisest, that's the best path. Lord, I give you everything. You be my Lord. You determine my life. You give me only that which honors you and which will bless me. Because I know in the end that has eternal consequences. And yeah. by the way, I was just looking at Revelation 22.3. That's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. And it says there, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, the new Jerusalem, and his slaves will serve him. So wow. if you think that it will be any different in heaven, it won't be. We're always going to be his slaves but we will be gloriously rewarded in glory for all that he has provided for us there awaits us there. We'll be happy to be slaves in that eternal place. You know, when it dawns on me too, John, we began our conversation talking about semantics and political correctness and incorrectness and people bristling at the idea of slavery. And I can see people even for a moment in the context that we have discussed this, kind of having that sense of resistance. You know, uh, I, I think our flesh is designed in such a fashion to battle against that. And yet it's interesting that this issue of slavery is something that while we may not recognize it, we're already engaged in, so many of us, because we are slaves to sin. Yeah, Romans six sixteen, you are slaves to sin and you've become slaves of righteousness. Uh, last week, um, uh, I was in, uh, of all places, Charleston, South Carolina, which was slave central uh, in the past uh, Half of all the slaves that came from Africa into America came through Sullivan's Island there in Charleston. I was there for a conference on slave conducted by an African-American church and African-American leaders there in the African-American section of Charleston, the east side of Charleston, in an African-American church. And I was there because they invited me to come because the leaders said this concept of slavery is the most liberating thing we've ever heard because so many of us carry around this baggage Mm -hmm. the weight of the abuses of slavery in the past and certainly we all understand that but to to get rid of that that holding on to that old kind of slavery and be liberated in the wonder of this generous benevolent glorious slavery that is ours in jesus christ was the most liberating this guy said it was the most liberating message he'd ever heard so he wanted me to come down there, and we had an unbelievable week with those 
precious people just talking about what it means to be the slave of Christ and how glorious a privilege that is. And to finally, I think, break the bonds of the past for those in our country today, John, that have a history, a familiar history that goes back to the slave days, and, and, and all that attends to that, the baggage, the weightiness of all of that, to, to be finally have that burden released. And you, I, I think attending to this, this aspect of our conversation, you've got a chapter that when I just saw the chapter title, Set Me Back on My Heels, that I think really will help us get a deeper understanding of exactly what you're speaking to here. You talk about being saved from sin, slaved by grace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Romans 6 again. Uh, we, uh, we were slaves of sin, but thanks be unto God, where we once were slaves of sin, we are now become the slaves of righteousness. You know, this is the illusion that the sinner has, that he's free. You know, this is what Luther said when he wrote The Bondage of the Will. You are free as a sinner, but you're only free to choose your sin. You're not free to choose not to sin. You're just, you can pick your poison, but it's going to kill you and it's going to damn you. So don't be under any illusion that you're really free. You never become free from the bondage of sin until you are freed by Christ and become his slave and the slave of righteousness. And then you have been liberated from sin. You've been liberated from its penalty. You've been liberated from its dominating power. And you're now free to live in righteousness and to enjoy the blessing of that. You know, I think, John, we're reminded in Scripture that his ways are not our ways. For so many that walk around under the weight, the pain, the bondage of sin, and they wish to be freed from all of this, um, to think that they can find their freedom in slavery. Wow. That's the paradox, that you will be free when you become the slave of sin, free from death free from sin's dominating power, and free from punishment, from hell, from condemnation. You're set free. You know, whom the Lord has made free is free indeed. We are free, and we have all the freedoms that belong to being a slave of Christ. He determines our freedoms. We are free to do what is right. We are free to enjoy his blessings. We are free to serve and minister and free to enjoy the lavish resources that grace provides for us. John, I almost feel at this moment, particularly for those that are eavesdropping on our conversation um, and hearing the insights that you have shared from the pages of your new book, Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, that it can be a real pivotal point in one's relationship with the Lord, either in, in deepening one's walk, in renewing that walk, or perhaps establishing that walk for the very first time for so many that have wanted to be out again from that bondage, the weight, that, that, um, that burden that they have dealt with of slavery to sin and want to fully enter into what it means to then suddenly become a slave for Christ, where their sole concern is to carry out the interests of our Lord and Master by whom we have been bought with a price. Where do people begin? How would you counsel somebody listening to our conversation right now that says, you know what, that word made me bristle when I first heard Craig and John mention it. Now I'm beginning to see. How would you counsel that individual? Well, I would say this. You're going to be a slave. You are a slave. You, you do not have freedom. You're either a slave to sin, and the end of that is condemnation and hell or you're a slave to righteousness, and the end of that 
his glory and heaven. Christ wants to set you free from the bondage of sin. You have to be willing to admit your sin, to admit your bondage, and from the depths of your heart, the desire has to be strong to be rescued from that bondage, and the only, the only rescuer there is is Christ. And if you will acknowledge Jesus Christ as your only Master and Lord and give him your life in exchange for his forgiveness of all your sins and the promise of eternal life, then you will become his slave you will go from a slavery that is deadly and crushing and corrupting and burdening to a kind of slavery to Christ that is freeing and joyous and hopeful and full of grace. And it all comes down to confessing Jesus as Lord and believing the gospel in your heart that he died and rose again and was raised from the dead as a sacrifice for your sins. If you put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, genuinely willing to be his slave, you will be liberated from the bondage to sin and freed to live according to righteousness. I know that for a lot of us, the concept of slavery as being something that would be liberating is a difficult one to wrap our our minds around. And that's the reason why I want to encourage you to dive into this book. Um, As John points out, we're a slave regardless But we do have the choice to decide what kind of slave we wish to be. Do we wish to be a slave to sin, or do we wish to exchange that kind of slavery that ultimately ends up in nothing but pain and condemnation to exchange that for slavery and servitude to Jesus Christ, and in doing so, experience true liberation? The book is called Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. Published by Thomas Nelson and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information about the book on the Grace to You website. It's simply gty.org. That's gty for grace to you.org. The program Grace to You, weekday mornings at 10.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And um, its host, of course, has been the author of this book and our guest on this edition of Lifeline, John MacArthur. John, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. Thank you, Craig. Great to be with you again. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think of it, so much of life has become temporary. There are those of us with a little bit of gray around the temples, old enough to remember the fact that, well, today, no longer do you collect gold watches after, say, 25 or 30 years of service to one company. We no longer raise families and retire in the same home where we spend ultimately 50 or more years in. And our marriages, well, they no longer make it to what was once a typical golden anniversary. Many of these challenges in the way life has changed, particularly related to marriage, goes down to one core issue, that it's becoming increasingly more challenging under the changes in society today to establish and maintain solid marriage relationships. But before we completely give up hope, there are some important key steps that you can today implement in your married life 
to change things around in a most dynamic and God-honoring fashion. Joining me now is Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. And Dr. Smalley, great to have you on the program. Hey, Craig. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, isn't it amazing how so much of life in just, you know, maybe a generation or two has changed so dramatically. Remember Dad working for the same company for 30-something years? They still live in the same house that I was raised in when I was a kid. And today, all of this has changed. We don't keep our jobs as long. We don't live in the same house as long. And sadly, we don't stay in marriages as long either. Yeah. It, it's true. And I tell you what, you know, way back in the 70s through the, the I, I think the one of the biggest things is the whole no-fault divorce. And uh, I, I don't think people really realize um, how much that has really hurt us. And, and, and I, that's why I'm thrilled as a country that right now, you know what, marriage is, is, is in the news all over the place. And I'm hoping that part of the outcome will be that we really, you know, uh, that, that we realize, like Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage should be honored by all, that, that we really learn as a country again, how do we honor marriage? What is that going to look like? Here's the absolute irony. You talk about no-fault divorce, and what we're really saying is, well, if it's nobody's fault, then it must be everybody's fault. Right. Uh, we, we all play a role in this. And toward that end, you've come up with some key steps that I think we can go to school on today to help people better understand the important relational moments. And, you know, we know that, that good marriages take time and they take work. But if you begin to break it down into all of the, the incremental elements, a lot of this stuff, quite frankly, is just good common sense if we just take the time enough to examine it and begin putting it into practice in our daily relational lives. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I believe one of the best things that we can do for our marriage is that we've got to learn how to work through and manage conflict. You know, there's a lot that we need to do for marriage, but if we started there, because it's inevitable, it's going to happen. You know, you can't take two people, you know, who have different personalities and genders and and all these things and and expect that they're not going to bump into each other, that they're not going to, you know, have conflict, they're not going to hurt and and wound each other. And and, and the problem that I see is that so many people are, uh, you know, are afraid to go through conflict. They avoid it. They sweep it under the rug. They, they, they want to ignore it. And, and the truth is that conflict can be used in our marriage to strengthen our marriage. That's when I get to learn more about my wife, her feelings, her needs. I get to learn more about myself. You know, and, you know, maybe it, it shows something's going on in our marriage that needs to change. I mean, conflict really is a good thing if we can learn how to do this in, in, in a healthy way. And, and this is so key, because what you're suggesting then, Dr. Smalley, is that, in, and oftentimes we'll couch this in terms of, well, I can't get along with my wife because, and we, you know, we'll pile a bunch of baggage there, or, or the husband, whatever the case might be, suggesting that there's some sort of a, a personality defect here. But what you're really talking about, and I took note of the fact, you didn't say avoid conflict. You said manage it, right. be able to work through it. So this isn't a, a personality defect. It's a skill deficit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we use the phrase even conflict resolution. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I, I don't think the goal is to try to figure out some resolution so much as it is the process. Can we develop a process that we can use anytime conflict comes up. So whether we resolve it or not, it's not the issue. I think it's how we do it. And unfortunately, most couples do this in a way that just doesn't work. And one of the biggest things that I see with couples is that we're taught to when we get into an argument, when we get hurt, when there's a problem, 
that we need to just hang in there and power through it and try to talk it through. And I think that is the biggest and worst advice that you can, you can give a couple. Because one, I don't think it works. When, when you're hurt, when you're wounded, when you're upset, when you're frustrated with your spouse, what I think is going on is you get these buttons of yours, these emotions get pushed, these buttons get pushed, and then your, your heart literally kind of closes. You shut down, and then you just start reacting. And, and, and in that mode, there is no way that you're listening. You're not able to hear. You're not able to understand. And that's why when people are in an argument, they need to kind of separate from each other. They need to take a break, a time out from each other. But I'm telling you, Craig, we're not taught to do that. We are taught to try to power through it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. I mean, it's, it's setting people up for massive failure. And that's really what, what I did in the book was to try to show you, here's a process. Because I, what, what I love is that if you take a break and work on you first, you need to learn how to get your heart back open. Because when people have open hearts, we're able to talk all day long. But, and this is so key because, you know, I would imagine in, in your role as executive director of the Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, you're hosting a nationally syndicated radio talk show, you've got patients, you've written books, the whole nine yards. Yeah. That you talk and hear from people all the time, this whole issue of conflict. It sounds to me that this is this is perhaps then less about conflict. At the end, it it's not this major difference between the two of us. In fact, we both both sides of the marriage really want the same thing, don't we? That yes. is, to 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 the, the right to be heard and the need to hear. Right. We want the, you know people want connection. We want we want to be connected. We want intimacy. You know we we want to be heard, understood, listened to, like you were talking about. And it's just sadly what happens is that in that moment that we're hurt or in conflict or whatever it is, that, that we're, we're, we, we are just taught to tr- keep trying to, to push through that. And, and, and it doesn't work. That's why one of my very favorite verses is in Matthew 7, 2 through 5. It says, why do you look at the dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye? And I love that the scriptures give an order. It says, first, first. Get the log out of your, your own eye, then you can see clearly. And, and how I relate that back to conflict is saying, okay, when, when you're in the middle of an argument, you have to understand that your heart has now closed. You are shut down. And when you are shut down, you are more likely to, to react, to say things, to do things, to retreat, you know, in, in a way that, that's not going to help you get to where you want to be. Therefore, quit trying to talk this through first. That's part two. Part one is that I need to go off by myself and, and figure out what is going on. I need to let my emotions settle down. I need to, you know, for me, you know, prayer is such a great time to, to, just to settle down, to get God's perspective, to say, hey, God, I don't know what's going on, but boy, I'm, I'm mad about something. What, what, what is the button that got pushed? You know, what... How do you want me to, to treat my wife? You know, you created her. Help me to understand her. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you work on you first and get your heart back open, see, then you can come back into that conversation. And, it, and, and I promise you, it will go so much differently. We fail at communicating through conflict because usually both hearts are closed. 
and, and there, you just can't talk through that. And, and so often, don't we also, Dr. Smalley, put so many expectations and demands on the other Oh yeah. that we can't control, and yet what we can control, we do nothing with. So right. if we're concerned, for example, about the fact that we feel as if we're not being heard, our spouse is not hearing me, and yet we've closed down and we're so focused on what we're not getting that we ourselves are not hearing our spouse either. Right. Well, one is an observation, but the other is something that I can actively change and that I have 100% control over. Totally. I mean, that's, again, I can, I can control me. I can choose how I want to show up. And, and, and that's why I, I say to people, you've, you've got to have a break. you just got to step away. Tell your spouse, you know what, right now I can't think clearly. I'm shut down. I'm going to go, but I'll be back. And, and, and that's, I think that's the, the, what we do to then set up the opportunity to really to work through conflict. If I can get my heart back open, see, now I'm, I, and I tell people, you, well, you know how your heart is open is when you want to be a listener, when you are willing to be a listener. I love in the, in the Chinese language, there's the, 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 the character, the symbol for the verb to listen is made up of three kind of little characters that come together. One stands for eyes, one for ears, and the other for open heart. Isn't that cool? Mm. So to, to listen is with your ears, your eyes, and your open heart. That's the evidence to me that you're ready to enter back into that conversation, that dialogue with your spouse when you are going, I want to I seek to understand you rather than me being understood. Dr. Greg Smalley is with us today. He, of course, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. Information, too, on the web at smalleymarriage.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline with Dr. Greg Smalley continues here on KFAX.